Blog Talk Radio. Cowboy Mike. Uh, this is going to be a new show that we're going to debut. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different from the normal Cowboy Rides Again podcast. This one is going to be focused primarily on sports. We're going to talk a lot of football. Uh, any big stories that come up, we're going to hit all of it. We've got a lot for you tonight, so let's get right into it. First thing we're going to talk about tonight is the college football playoff rankings that came out this evening. The top four are unchanged. Uh, Alabama's number one. We've got Ohio State followed by Michigan and Clemson. Uh, no real surprise there. They all won last weekend. Um, didn't expect to shake up there. Where there was some change was in the number five spot. Louisville had occupied that spot uh, after their loss at Houston. They fell all the way down number 11. Uh, the primary beneficiary of that was the University of Washington. They moved up to number five. That opens the door for them because – we're going to see Ohio State or Michigan lose on Saturday. So if Washington can win the Apple Cup and beat Washington State, it would put them in the Pac-12 title game. They would obviously win the Pac-12 North, and it sets them up with an opportunity with one game left to play, which either Michigan or Ohio State, or potentially both of them, won't have uh, to sneak into that top four, which Look, if they're a 12-1 and Pac-12 champion, I don't have any problem with that. I think Washington's been impressive. They had the one loss at home to USC, which wasn't particularly close. It was a bad game for them, but I think the Huskies have played well all year. Uh, I don't have any issue with them being in the top four should they go 12-1 and and win the Pac-12. Um, Wisconsin, Penn State, Oklahoma, Colorado, and Oklahoma State all moved up one spot to round out the top ten. Uh, we also have USC coming in at number 12. They're really moving up pretty quick. USC is playing like one of the top four teams in the country right now. Problem is they have three losses. Uh, so I think that the ship has sailed for them this season. But uh, the way Sam Darnold is playing, Clay Helton seems to have that team together. I think the Trojans next year, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them in the top five for the preseason rankings for next season. Uh, I think that USC is playing great defense. Uh, and if Darnold can take steps forward, that team next year could be a very, very legitimate playoff contender. Uh, the other interesting one is Auburn is at number 13. The Iron Bowl should be fantastic as usual on Saturday, uh, but there's a lot at stake here, obviously. Um, Alabama is number one in the country. They're undefeated. They've already clinched the SEC West. I don't really see a way that Alabama misses out in this playoff if they – Lose to Auburn, they're still going to the SEC title game, and I don't see any way they lose to Florida. I don't think Florida is a very good football team. I think the SEC East is one of the worst divisions in college football, and, and some people may jump on me for that, but you're looking at Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, Kentucky, Vanderbilt. Those aren't very good teams. People can point to Florida's one-loss record, and they can look at – the fact that uh, they beat LSU last Saturday. I don't think they have any offense. I think Alabama wins that game by 30 points. Um, so I don't see Florida upsetting Alabama. I think that the Iron Bowl should be a great game, but ultimately it means more for Auburn than it does for Alabama, which could set up an interesting game. Um, I think that the obviously the most important game of the weekend is going to happen in Columbus, Ohio, with Michigan and Ohio State. Um, it's real hard to get a read on that game because I don't know where Wilton Spade is. Harbaugh's kind of been playing coy with this injury. When it first happened two weeks ago in Iowa, people were saying he broke his collarbone. He was done for the year. Harbaugh's saying day-to-day. You have to wonder how effective he's going to be on Saturday because if that kid's not ready to go or he's playing at 50%, I don't think they stand a chance. If he's healthy or he can put it together, Michigan plays great defense. They have enough weapons that, you know, th this game means everything to that football team. 
the way that they lost last year to Michigan State and Ohio State, you know Jim Harbaugh came into week one this year with those two games circled on the calendar. There's no doubt about it. This makes their season in more ways than one. Number one, it gives them a win over Ohio State, which they haven't had in a while. And number two, it would cement them in that playoff picture because they would win their division in the Big Ten. They'd go to the Big Ten title game where they'd be favored. I just don't I, – I don't know. I don't know, man. It's going to be a really tough game to predict without knowing about Wilton Spate. Um, he, he makes that team a, a very, very different team on offense. Ohio State, I think we saw last Saturday when they played Michigan State, that they can be tested. They can be punched in the mouth a little bit. Michigan has the ability to do that, but you're going to need to score points. You're not going to beat Ohio State 14-7. You're going to have to put points on the board, and I don't know they can do that without Wilton Spate. So this Saturday we've got some great, great games. Obviously Michigan-Ohio State at noon. By the way, I hate that that game is at noon. I hate it. I, I – I don't enjoy watching college football at 12 o'clock. It's, it's one of those things where it's, it's kind of hard to get geared up that early in the morning. I'm not a Michigan or Ohio state fan, so I'm not dedicating, you know, the, the 48 hours before to that game. That game should be on at eight o'clock at night. That should be a prime time game under the lights. That's when they should play that 12 o'clock is ridiculous. I don't like that. The iron bowls played at like three 30. Again, these are huge, huge games with national interest, enormous implications on the playoff. These games should be played in prime time, not at these ridiculous time slots that networks decide, or for whatever reason, these schools don't want to play at night. Um, so great games in Columbus. The Iron Bowl should be awesome. The Apple Cup for the first time in a long time means a lot because Washington State is number 23 in the country. They're very good. Mike Leach's team can score a ton of points. Um, he's done a really good job up there in Pullman. And – you know, we've got some, some games that really, really mean everything to these teams. And Colorado's playing Utah. We haven't even talked about that. Number nine, Colorado is playing Utah. They control their own destiny in the Pac-12 uh, uh, north, south. sorry. And um, if they win there, they've got a chance to go and potentially play Washington and, and maybe pull an upset there. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see how these games all break down uh, this Saturday in college football. Speaking of college football, we have to discuss the situation that's going on in Austin, Texas, and we're going to do it. We're going to give you no bull. The situation with Charlie Strong in Texas is embarrassing for everybody involved. Charlie Strong has been an abject failure at Texas. A lot of people don't like to say that because apparently he is a very popular guy in the media. He's a good guy to talk to. A lot of people even in Austin like him. His players seem to love him. But the facts are the facts. He is 16-20 and 20 in three seasons in Austin. Mac Brown was there before that. In his last three years, they won eight, nine, and eight games. Charlie Strong has never won eight games in Austin. They are looking like they're not going to be bowl eligible this year. They're looking like they're headed for a five and seven season because I don't think they're going to be TCU on Saturday. And the final nail in the coffin should have come this past Saturday when they lost to Kansas for the first time since 1938. Think about that for a second. Think about all the things that have happened since Kansas has beaten Texas, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, two Gulf Wars, 9-11, the Cubs have won a World Series. I mean, it, it's ridiculous that they went in to Lawrence and lost that football game 24-21. to 21. That has to reflect on him. That is a, 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 a absolutely on Charlie Strong that he has this team. When he first got there, they couldn't play offense. They couldn't score any points. But their defense was solid. Now, it's the reverse. Their offense seems better. Shane Bouchelle, I like him at quarterback. I think he's good. I think their running game is strong. They have a lot of young talent. But their defense can't stop anybody. We watched them in week one, beat Notre Dame in overtime, and everyone said, Texas is back. And they're not. That win's not impressive. Notre Dame's garbage. They're in a terrible season. And so now we have to deal with what they're doing with Charlie Strong. Right after that game on Saturday, 
everyone was saying there were reports coming out of Austin that they had decided to fire him, which I think is the right call. I think he's got to go. He may be a nice guy. The buyout is $10.1 million. That's a lot of money, but it's not really a lot of money for Texas because they have so many boosters with so much resources down there. It's not the end of the world. He has to go, but you also have to do things the right way. And this is the problem with Texas football right now. They're leaving this guy dangling. He held a press conference today and said he's not fired, which is strange coming from a person who's supposedly going to be terminated. He said he's not fired. He said he's been told he'll be evaluated at the end of the season. I, I don't know what they're doing here. The right thing to do is to let the guy go. It was an abysmal loss to a, a literally the doormat, one of the, the worst doormats in college football. He's got to go. But you also have to do things properly. You can't go with this, he's out, he's in, we don't know. Maybe we're talking to Nick Saban a year ago. Maybe we're talking to Tom Herman. We're flirting with people. This is part of the problem. This is why coaches will say no to this job. This is, in my opinion, one of the top three jobs in college football. It may be the best job in college football solely because of the fact that it's in Texas, which has some of the most unbelievable football players coming out of high school of anywhere in the country. It's the premier program in the state, and the resources that they have are nearly unlimited. Yet they got turned down by how many people before they gave this job to Charlie Strong three years ago? Several, several people said no thanks. They tried to get Nick Saban last offseason. Couldn't do it. And the money was there. The money was there. They were offering him 10, 12 million bucks a year, and he said no thanks. And if they don't handle things correctly this time around, they're going to have the same problem. The list is easy this time. It's easy. There are three names on this list and three names only if they have any idea what they're doing. Tom Herman, Jimbo Fisher, and Les Miles. Nobody else. You can't go hire a coordinator. You can't go and hire Scott Frost. You can't go and hire Lane Kiffin. God knows they can't do that. Tom Herman coaches at Houston. He was the offensive coordinator at Ohio State. He has been successful everywhere he goes. He's in-state. He's at a lesser program in a lesser conference. This should be an easy hire. But it's not going to be easy because Texas doesn't make things easy. They forced Mac Brown out after he had been successful for so many years. They took Charlie Strong, who was maybe their third choice, and now they're going to let him dangle in the wind. And if you're a coach there, look, this is a rebuild. This is a project. This isn't going to happen overnight. You have to wonder what's going to happen if I go 7-5 and five my first year. What happens if they don't think there's enough improvement in year two? What if we're not contending for a national title in year three? Tom Herman, Jimbo Fisher, Les Miles. It's going to be hard to get Jimbo Fisher unless the money is ridiculous because I think LSU is going to make a real hard play for him. He's got ties there. It's probably a better fit. Les Miles, I think it'd be a great fit. I think Les Miles... I think Les Miles is one of the most underrated college coaches in the last 10 years. The guy did nothing but win at LSU. He couldn't beat Nick Saban. You know what? Nobody can. Nobody beats Nick Saban. Problem for him is he was coaching in his shadow at LSU where Saban had won national titles and Les Miles was quirky and didn't have great offenses and it didn't go well for him. But I think he'd be a great choice for Texas. And I think he would take that job in a heartbeat. But they seem to love Tom Herman, and with good reason. Texas has to get this right. If they screw this higher up, if they botch this, if they handle it the wrong way, if they try to lowball people, if they wait too long to let Charlie Strong go, they're going to wind up downtrodden for the next five, six, seven years. Who knows the same way Michigan was when they played around after Lloyd Carr left. Get it right, Texas. It's on you. That's no bull. We're going to move now to a new segment that I'm going to call the three-point play. I'm going to talk about three different things that resonated with me over the weekend. 
The first is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I was not very bullish on this team to start this season. Um, I was, I thought it was a mistake to fire Lovey Smith. I was not sold on Dirk Cutter as a head coach. Uh, I thought that Dirk Cutter was an okay offensive coordinator. I didn't understand the rush to fire Lovey Smith at midnight one night and hire Dirk Cutter because you didn't want to potentially lose him. I don't know if there was a team rushing to hire Dirk Cutter, but they did what they did. They didn't start out great. Winston was up and down. Roberto Aguayo had his problems. Um, but the win that they had on Sunday in Kansas City when they beat the Chiefs 19-17 was really impressive to me. Um, the Bucks have kind of fought back here. They're at 5-5 five and five right now. They're one game out the division behind Atlanta. Um, I, I think that Tampa played a really, really impressive football game. Winston was – uh, 24 of 39 for 331 yards and a touchdown. Mike Evans, six receptions, 105 yards. Aguayo was a perfect four for four. Um, they were 11 for 16 on third down. That is a ridiculous statistic in the NFL. And when you factor in the game was on the road in Arrowhead, which is one of the toughest places to play against a team with a really good defense, it's an incredibly impressive statistic. Um, the Bucks have put themselves quietly in a position to be successful here. And I think a lot of the credit here goes to Jameis Winston. When Jameis Winston came out of Florida state, I think I felt like a lot of people did. He had all the talent in the world. He has all the raw ability in the world. You wondered about where his head was because the guy made some just awful decisions at Florida state. And I'm I'm not even going to get into the, the sexual assault accusation, because I don't know what happened, what didn't happen. None of us do. But aside from that, he made some really, really bad decisions there. And you questioned his maturity and whether he was ready to be the face of a franchise. I think he's showing you now that he is. He's thrown for almost 2,700 yards through 10 games. He's got 20 touchdowns. He had 22 all year last year. And they're a game out of first place. And after the game, this was Jameis Winston in the Bucks locker room. I told you, I told you I was grateful for every one of y'all. You see how we play as a family. You see what we can do as a family. One team, one Harvey, it's all about us. Hey, I'm going to get this game ball back to Coach Carter. Let's bring it down, baby. Hey, hey, it's all about the family. If we stay together, man, the sky's the limit, all right? Family on three. One, two, three, family. He's a leader. He's a leader in that locker room. When I hear him talk like that and I hear the passion in his voice and I hear how fired up he is about this game and how he's talking to his teammates about how important they are and how grateful he is for them, that's a guy that you want to go – into a game with. That's a guy that makes you want to run through a wall. When he's up there and he's talking about those things and he's giving credit to the coach and he's giving credit to everyone else except himself, that's impressive to me. And I give Jameis Winston a lot of credit because I think he's growing into a very, very good NFL quarterback. And when I listen to him in press conferences and he's talking about how losing isn't acceptable, it's ex- uh, winning is expected. That's what it should be. That's how good teams think. They're not jumping up and down every time they win a game. It's expected that they win a game. And Jameis Winston went on the road in one of the toughest environments in the NFL and played a fantastic game and delivered the Bucks a win. So they're 5-5 five and five at this point. The rest of the way, they've got Seattle at home next week. Obviously a tough game. Then they're at San Diego, New Orleans at home, at Dallas, at New Orleans, and the Panthers at home to finish the season. I'm not sure how these games are going to go for them. The Seattle game is obviously going to be very tough. I mean, Seattle's going to drop one or two the rest of the way in all likelihood. I don't know if it's that one, but I think the Bucs can play with them. Uh, The San Diego game, obviously that travel is going to be difficult, but again, the, the, the Chargers seem to just constantly find ways to get in their own way. So you have to think that the Bucs have a chance there. The Dallas game, I'm not sure about the two games against New Orleans. I think that the Bucks match up very, very favorably against the Saints. Uh, and the Carolina game at home, if that game has implications, I, I think the Bucks are in really good shape there. 
I'm not sure whether they're going to catch Atlanta or not, but they're taking steps forward this year that I didn't know that they would be able to take. So I give a lot of credit to Jameis Winston. Dirk Cutter deserves some credit. Um, that team stepped up. Mike Evans could have, could have been a, a major distraction with the whole national anthem and Donald Trump thing, but he came out six catches, 105 yards, including a huge third down conversion in the fourth quarter. Um, that team showed up. They were impressive. I was very, very impressed by what they did on Sunday. Second one we've got for you is the Washington Redskins. I'm sure a lot of you watched the game on Sunday night against the Packers. Uh, the Redskins sit now at 6-3-1. and one. They beat the Packers 42-24 to 24 on Sunday night in primetime. Kirk Cousins. I, I mean, what is there to say about this guy? This guy was drafted the same year they took RG3. A lot of people said, what the hell is this team doing, taking two quarterbacks in four rounds? Man, he has really, really started to develop. 21 of 30, 375 yards, three touchdowns. Kirk Cousins now holds the record for most 300-yard passing games by a Washington Redskins quarterback. That's crazy to me. He's played basically two seasons at this point, and the guy is just – he's playing out of his mind. He's going to get paid – an enormous amount of money this offseason. The Redskins gambled and lost. This is just like when Joe Flacco bet on himself when they won the Super Bowl a few years ago, played into free agency, and what, what choice do you have? What's the option for Washington? You're going to take quarterback in the draft? Who? They're not going to have a good draft pick. They're going to be picking towards the bottom of the first round. Who are you taking that you can say right now is better than Kirk Cousins? There's nobody in free agency. You want to roll the dice with Jay Cutler? You want, you want to go on that roller coaster? Cousins right now sits third in the NFL with almost 3,100 yards passing through 10 games. He is on pace for over 4,500 yards passing this year. It's unbelievable what that guy's doing. That team plays solid, solid football. When you think about the dysfunction that has gone on there for the last two-plus years with Robert Griffin and Daniel Snyder meddling. They went out last year. They finally hired a real general manager in Scott McLuhan, and he has put the pieces together on that football team. They have talent at the wide receiver positions with Pierre Garçon, with uh, Deshaun Jackson. Uh, Jordan Reed is a very, very good tight end when he's healthy. They added Josh Norman probably the best corner in football, certainly among the top two or three, to a defense that was already decent. That defense, it's not the, the greatest defense in football, but it's, it, it, can, it can get a stop when it needs to. And then they found this running back, Fat Rob, Rob Kelly, and this guy runs the ball, man. This guy runs. He runs hard. He runs north and south. He is a great compliment. The Redskins have a great play action. Uh, they're, they look really good. Now, the thing that, that has to worry you if you're, if you're the Redskins, or you, you're playing three road games in a row coming up. First one is going to be this Thursday on Thanksgiving at Dallas. It's a huge game. It's a huge game for the Redskins because it pulls them within one in the division. Um, it obviously, they're, they're in playoff position right now for a wild card, but you, you want to solidify that. I've been very, very high on the Cowboys this year. I think that team is playing unreal football. But I think Washington matches up really well with them, better than almost anybody. Because the Redskins have the ability to move the football. They stay on the field for a long time. Their play-action passing game is very good. And if they can tire that Dallas defense out and not give Dak Prescott and not give Ezekiel Elliott the ability to control the game clock with possession. The Redskins have a chance here. They have a real serious chance here. I like the Redskins in this game. I think they're, they're very, very competitive with Dallas. One of the better teams in football that matches up with the Cowboys. The third one we've got for you from this Sunday was the Miami Dolphins. The Dolphins have been the hottest team in football in the last month. They've won five in a row. 
including wins over Pittsburgh, Buffalo, at San Diego, and at L.A. I thought the Dolphins were terrible. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I didn't see this coming. I don't know who did. But I remember watching the Dolphins play the Browns in Miami, and that game went to overtime, and they should have lost that football game. The Browns missed kicks. They muffed plays. The Dolphins gave them every opportunity to win that game, and the Browns couldn't do it. And the Dolphins pulled it out in overtime. And I thought after that that they were one of the worst three teams in football. And since then, (laughs) they've been the single hottest team in football. Ryan Tannehill is completing 66% of his passes. He's got almost 2,300 yards passing, 12 touchdowns, eight picks. Jay Ajayi is sixth in the lead in rushing with 802 yards. And he missed week one. Adam Gase did not bring him to Seattle for week one, where they lost a nail-biter of a game that they may have pulled out, and Adam Gase may live to regret that one because he didn't bring Jay Ajayi. The Rams game showed that the Dolphins have a different mentality than they've had in the past. The Dolphins in years past have been a team that starts well, they hang around the playoff picture on the fringes, and then they drop these ridiculous games at the end of the year to keep themselves out. I think it was two years ago they lost a game to the Jets in Week 17 to get eliminated. They just haven't been a strong team. And this game in L.A. on Sunday, it showed me we're dealing with a different team because the Rams' defense controlled that game for 54 minutes. They controlled the Dolphins' offense. Tannehill couldn't do anything. The Rams' defense had that thing locked down. And then Tannehill led a great drive down the field for a touchdown through a beautiful touchdown pass. They get the ball back, and he takes them right back down the field. On those two drives, he was 13 of 14 with two touchdowns, including a touchdown to Jarvis Landry, which was one of the coolest plays that you'll see in a while because he was clearly stopped short. I remember watching it, and he he was – wrapped up at like the five-yard line. And I'm saying, why is Tannehill throwing the ball so short? And his teammates just, Landry, to his credit, kept the legs going. He did not go down. And his teammates rush in, and they start just pushing and pushing and pushing the pile, and they shove him into the end zone for a touchdown. And this was Jarvis Landry after the game. There's never a point in the time, time in the game that we felt like it was too late. You know, I think we scored right there with about five minutes left. Um, defense went out, out uh, and got us the ball back with two minutes to go. And, um, you know, we wanted to be aggressive. You know, we didn't want the field goal. We wanted the touchdown. We wanted to be aggressive. We didn't want a field goal. That, to me, is the difference in this Dolphins team and teams in the past. They weren't playing safe. They played aggressive. They went out, and they took the game by the horns, and they won it. The Dolphins are 6-4 and four right now. The rest of their schedule, they've got San Francisco at home next week. Then they're at Baltimore, Arizona in Miami. Then they're at the Jets at Buffalo, and they finish with New England at home. It's an interesting slate. I, it's it's going to be an interesting stretch run for them because I think the San Francisco game's a win. I think of the Baltimore and Arizona games, I think they get one of those. I'm not sure which one. I would lean towards the Baltimore game, but I don't know which one. I think they get one. I think they beat the Jets. I think they probably lose to the Bills. That's a Christmas Eve game in Buffalo. Buffalo is a tough place to play at the end of December, folks. The weather is bad. And if you're coming from South Florida up there, uh, good luck. I, I, I think they dropped that game. But the benefit that they'll probably have is they close with New England in Miami. Patriots probably have nothing to play for at this point. Belichick does have a history of resting his starters in that situation. I could easily see the Dolphins going 10-6, and six, which is enormous progress for that team. Ryan Tannehill, if he keeps this up, is going to entrench himself in that job. Jay Ajayi is going to entrench himself. 10-6 and six is a major step for this organization, and it might be good enough for a playoff berth. It looks pretty solid right now. Um, but 10-6 and six would be a major, major step forward for this team 
And I think it is certainly feasible if they keep playing the way that they have been playing. We're going to do a segment now called the death penalty. We're going to administer the death penalty to one team each week. And basically this is a team that's dead and they may or may not realize it, but this week it's the Houston Texans. Brock Osweiler stinks. He's terrible. I'm sorry. I liked him when he played against new England in that start last year for Denver in the snow and he beat him in overtime when new England was undefeated. I don't get how you spend $72 million on that guy with that sample size. He struggled in his last couple of starts. You spend $72 million on him and he's one of the worst quarterbacks in football. This team is being wasted away. They have a fantastic defense. They have DeAndre Hopkins, who's one of the best wideouts in football. Will Fuller looks like he's going to be a very, very good receiver on, on the edge. And they're wasting all of it. Don't talk to me about how they're 6-4 and four and they're in first place. I get it. That division's the worst in football. There's no argument there. None. But they're walking into a problem here. They're 6-4. and four. They still have games against San Diego. They have to go to Green Bay, to Indianapolis, and they finish at Tennessee in Week 17. The Colts are a game back. The Titans are a game and a half back. I don't think this team wins that division because I think Osweiler is busted. I heard him after the game last night in his press conference blaming the lasers that people were pointing at him from the stands. Look, I get it. Lasers in your eye, it's not a great thing. But the fact of the matter is you haven't played good football since you got to Houston. You didn't have lasers in your eye for the first nine weeks of the season, and you didn't have them in your eye on every play last night. Brock Osweiler is not the answer at quarterback there. And I'm not sure that Bill O'Brien's the answer at head coach. Bill O'Brien makes some really, really baffling decisions. And apparently... When they signed Brock Osweiler to this $72 million contract, Bill O'Brien hadn't even met the guy. How do you pay a quarterback $72 million and not have him meet with your head coach? That's ridiculous. Would New England ever do that? Would Pittsburgh ever do that? Would the Seahawks do that? No. That's what happens when you're a poorly run franchise. You make impulsive decisions. It's the same thing in life. If you're not a responsible person, what do you do? You make impulsive decisions that you probably can't afford to make, that you probably shouldn't make. If you're a responsible adult, you don't do those things. You don't go out and buy a Porsche when you should be buying a Honda. But the Texans aren't run that way. They're not a quality-run organization. They never have been. So they went out and wasted this money, and they wasted a year of all of their talent's time, and they're going to get nothing out of it. Best case scenario is they win that division, 8-8, eight and 9-7, eight, and seven, and they get bounced in the first round, which is what happens every year because they don't have a quarterback, and guess what? They still don't. I just talked about Bill O'Brien a little bit. I want to talk right now about the importance of coaching in the NFL because I don't think it's ever been clearer than this weekend. Bill O'Brien is a major reason why the Texans lost that game. There were three minutes and two seconds left in the fourth quarter. They were down seven, and they had one timeout left. It was fourth down and four. He punts the ball. They hadn't been able to stop Oakland for a quarter and a half at that point. And he punted the ball with one timeout, 3.04 on the clock, down seven. You can't do that. You have to trust your $72 million man. You have to trust your offense to go out there and pick up four yards and keep you in contention. Not to mention, they were right around midfield. They only gained about 20 yards with the punt. What's the point? Take a shot at the end zone. 
What's the worst thing that happens? Maybe it gets intercepted. It's the same result as a punt. Maybe you get a penalty. Maybe you catch the ball. He gives his team no chance to win. And this is what Bill O'Brien had to say after the game in his press conference. I did. I definitely did. I thought it was more like, from my vantage point, it looked more like fourth and six. So I felt like it was three, about 3.15 to go in the game, and I felt the ball was around the 40, 45-yard line that we could maybe uh, try to pin them and, uh, and try to stop them, make them punt. And, you know, I had a timeout there. And so I, you know, look, hindsight can always be 20-20. Obviously, if I had it back, I'd go for it. But I felt like that was the best decision at the time. He felt like it was fourth and six. There was about 3.15 left. No, Bill. No. It was fourth and four, three oh two left. And that shows lack of precision on his part. Do you think that if Bill Belichick or PK were at the podium, they wouldn't have known exactly what the situation was? Of course they would have. It's their job. Bill O'Brien's estimating, he's guessing. I had a timeout left. What's the best case scenario there, Bill? The two minute clock two minute warning stops the clock, you use the timeout, you're getting the ball back. With no timeouts in probably not really good field position because Marquette King's one of the best punters in football, and he's kicking in 7,000 feet altitude, so he can probably boom the hell out of it. And you're getting the ball back having to go, what, 70, 75 yards with a minute left and no timeouts? You don't trust your offense to pick up four yards on fourth down, but you trust them to do that? That decision makes no sense flip the coin, and you see Jack Del Rio. End of that game. The Raiders are in potential field goal range, trying to run the clock out. It's fourth down. Maybe you punt it. Maybe you try the field goal with Janikowski. He's got a hell of a leg. Jack Del Rio says, no. We're going to go for it. And we're not going to hand the ball off and run it up the middle. We're not going to do a quarterback sneak. We're going to throw the ball to the end zone. You know what? It worked that's what happens when you have faith in your team. And Jack Delio has shown it all season long. He's taken these chances, and they almost always work out. He's, and the players, the more you do it, the more they'll believe in themselves. Jack Del Rio, or Black Jack Del Rio, he's fond of gambling, not on games, but with his decision, he puts his team in a position to win every single week. Bill O'Brien cost his team the chance to win that game with his decision-making last week. Another coach that I I just do not understand is Jeff Fisher. Jeff Fisher is about to have this season with four more losses, which he will absolutely accumulate. He will be the losingest coach in NFL history. Jeff Fisher will have more losses than any head coach that is ever coached in the NFL. He's never better than 500. He's a 500 coach at best. His teams range anywhere from 6 and 10 to 9 and 7. He went to the Super Bowl one year and lost. He wasted the career of Eddie George, Steve McNair in Tennessee, and he's wasting Todd Gurley right now. He is going to run that kid into the ground because he can't find a quarterback. That team is one of the top defenses in football. Watch them play, people. Look at the scores that they give up on Sundays. Six points, nine points, ten points, twelve points. They are one of the best defenses in football. And they can't win games. If they have a league average quarterback there. That would be an excellent football team. Todd Gurley in the backfield. If Ryan Tannehill, Kirk Cousins was on that team, that team would probably be 7-3, and 8-2 and two at this point. But they can't score points. Jeff Fisher runs a vanilla offense that everyone in the league can see coming. And somehow, he's been paid $35 million by the Rams to be a sub-500 coach. And yet, there are rumors that he received an extension and the Rams just are waiting for a good time to announce it. 
What's the good time when he finally gets to seven and nine? Jeff Fisher is not going to lead you to a Super Bowl. And if you realize that as an NFL owner or general manager, that you have a coach that will not lead you to a Super Bowl, it's time to cut the cord. Find somebody else because I got news for you. They can't be much worse than Jeff Fisher. At best, he's a 500 guy. I watched Hard Knocks this offseason when he said, we're not going to tolerate any of this 8-8 eight and eight BS. Newsflash, Jeff, you're not going to be 8-8. Eight and eight. You're headed for 6-10. and 10. And you're wasting one of the top young talents at running back in the league right now because you're going to run him into the ground because you don't have a single quarterback that can throw a pass downfield. They put Jared Goff in, and Jared Goff was okay, but he looks wildly overmatched. Jared Goff isn't going to be the answer there. Stan Kroenke needs to clean house. This team needs to be competitive when they open a brand-new, modern, beautiful stadium in 2019. Jared Goff's not going to be the quarterback in 2019 of the L.A. Rams people. I'm telling you right now. Les Snead made the decision to trade up, give away their future in the draft to take Jared Goff. Could have had Carson Wentz. Could have taken Dak Prescott and not moved at all. But he moved up for Jared Goff. And make no mistake, they don't trust Jared Goff to play right now. This is a job-saving move because Jeff Fisher is going to throw him out there for the next five weeks and then turn around and say, well, we're developing a quarterback. So you really want to change coaches in midstream when we're trying to develop this kid? This is a move to save his job. If they trusted this kid, he would have been out there weeks ago. But they don't. He didn't even dress in week one. He wasn't even active. And if you watched him on Hard Knocks, it's not hard to figure out why. I'm sorry to say, but Jared Goff doesn't strike me as the sharpest tool in the shed. And I think quarterback is the one position in the NFL where you do need to have some intelligence. You have to read defenses. You have to anticipate what's going to happen and make adjustments accordingly. And I don't know that Jared Goff can do that. He comes out of a spread system at Cal that has produced one, one effective NFL quarterback, and that's Aaron Rodgers. And there is no mistaking Jared Goff with Aaron Rodgers. Reminds me a lot more of Kyle Bowler, another Cal product. Jeff Fisher needs to go. Les Snead probably needs to go. Stan Kroenke needs to clean house before that L.A. fan base turns his back, turns its back on him and the Rams, just like they did back in the 90s. Irrelevant teams don't draw in Los Angeles. We're going to finish up now with some Thanksgiving stuffing. We've got Thanksgiving coming up on Thursday. There are three very good football games on that day. And maybe you're looking to make a little more stuffing. Maybe you're looking to uh, fatten up a little bit. Not sure where to go. We're here in the Minnesota Vikings at the Detroit Lions. Detroit is favored by two and a half here. This game, I think, was the toughest game of the week for me to pick. Um, I like Detroit. I like Detroit a lot. Stafford has played, I think, the best football of his career. He's limited the mistakes. In a weird way, he's been freed by not having Calvin Johnson there because I think he force-fed Calvin Johnson to the point that he would throw the ball in places he shouldn't throw it and just assume that Megatron would go up and play. And I think now he's spreading the ball around, even if they really don't have a running game. Their defense plays okay. Caldwell worries me. I, I, I can barely tell if he's alive half of the time. The guy is so emotionless on the sideline. But I like Detroit. It's at home. I like Minnesota a little more, though. I know people are off the Vikings because they had a rough month. But at the end of the day, the Vikings defense is still top two in football with Seattle. Um, you know, Sam Bradford has played well enough at times. Kyle Rudolph has played well. Um, you know, I, I think that that team with Stephon Diggs, Rudolph, Bradford, I, I think that they have enough. I don't know if they win the game, but give me the two and a half points and give me the Vikings in the early game. 
Second game of the day is the Redskins at the Cowboys. Cowboys are a seven-point favorite. I love the Dallas Cowboys. I love the Cowboys. Dak Prescott has been incredibly impressive. Ezekiel Elliott is Bryant. I mean, Beasley, the defense has played great. It's the best offensive line in football. You can go on and on and on and on. I think the Redskins match up well. I also think it's a short week for Dallas. And you've got young players, Prescott and Elliott, who may be starting to tire just a little bit. They may be starting to hit a little bit of a wall. And a short week's tough. And it's a holiday. I'm sure they're having whatever family in town or anything like that. And I think that the Cowboys will probably win this game. But seven, I think, is too many to lay. Vegas has been wrong on the Cowboys every single week this season. They are 0-9-1 against the spread with the Cowboys. I think this is the week they get on the board. I think the Redskins plus seven points are the bet. Kirk Cousins, by the way, Kirk Cousins, this was what he had to say to his general manager after the win against Green Bay. How do you like me now? How do you like me now? I'd say he likes you pretty well, Kirk, but probably more than Daniel Snyder does because he's going to have to write an enormous check in the offseason. I think Kirk Cousins matches up really well with the Cowboys defense because they keep the ball on the field on the offensive side of the ball for a long time. And that takes away one of the primary advantages that the Cowboys have, which is time of possession. They're number one in the NFL in time of possession. I think that the Redskins can keep with them. They can score enough points. Give me Washington and the seven points in the afternoon game. Final game of the night is our night game. It's Pittsburgh at Indianapolis. Pittsburgh is an eight-and-a-half-point favorite. That is just too many points. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I think Pittsburgh probably wins the game. I feel like that's like a 60-40 proposition. I like Big Ben. I like Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown. The Steelers play no defense. Their defense is terrible. People assume because they're the Steelers, that they play defense, and they just don't. Um, it's one of the worst defenses I've ever, I've ever seen in black and gold. The Colts are not much better. Their offensive line is garbage. They can't run the ball. Their defense isn't very good. But Andrew Luck is good, and they still have T.Y. Hilton, and they can still throw the ball around. And the Colts score a lot of garbage time points when they're losing games. They throw the ball a lot. I could see this game being a 14-point game with 10 minutes to go, and then next thing you know, it's a six-point game with two minutes left. I, I, it's too many points to lay, eight and a half points. I, I don't trust the Steelers, anybody except the Browns and the 49ers by eight and a half points. And truthfully, I, I hesitated a little bit to say the Browns. I, I, I think that you have to take the Colts. You have to take the points. I think that is where you're going to get your Thanksgiving stuffing this Thursday Minnesota plus two and a half, Washington plus seven, and Indianapolis plus eight and a half. That has been the sports section with Cowboy Mike. I hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Cowboy Mike. That's MR Cowboy Mike. Facebook at The Cowboy Rides Again. Uh, You can follow our blog, which is updated frequently with sports stories. Uh, interesting, dumb criminal stuff, anything I find interesting at thecowboyridesagain.com. Again, thank you very much for listening. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy the football. And uh, we will be back on Saturday with our regular The Cowboy Rides Again podcast. Everyone, thank you. Have a great holiday. Good night.
Drunk ass home. I drank all the whiskey. 